welcome to the You're Not Alone podcast, where we want you to find hope and encouragement from real people sharing their real stories. So here we go with your weekly dose of real talk, girl chat, and good vibes. Hey friends, on today's episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Michelle Bankson. She's an author, speaker, and neuropsychologist, as well as a wife and a mother. Listen in as Dr. Michelle shares her personal journey through depression and how she came out on the other side filled with hope and God's promises. We absolutely loved recording this interview and left feeling inspired and encouraged. We hope that you feel the same way after listening as Michelle reminds us that hope prevails. Here we go. Hey, Dr. Michelle, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're so excited. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your life, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'm a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist, and most people have no idea what that is. So basically, I'm a doctor, and I it's kind of like a combination between a psychologist and a neurologist and a psychiatrist. So I work with patients who experience any kind of brain dysfunction, but that's just kind of the job part of me, the the more important side of me is that I'm a wife and a mom to two great kids. Awesome. Well, um, we've already talked about this, but I found you through a book called Hope Prevails that you have written, and you have a new book coming out that we'll talk about too. But I wanted you to tell a little bit of the story about why you wrote that book. And I'll tell you the exact title for our listeners, Hope Prevails, Insights from a Doctor's Personal Journey Through Depression. So we'd love to hear what prompted you to write that. When I first started thinking about writing this book, it really came about because as a neuropsychologist, I see patients about once an hour. And so I could see about eight patients a day. And I, over the course of my career, I've seen thousands of patients who struggle with depression and different variants of depression, so bipolar disorder and dysthymia and and medical conditions that bring with it depression. But I would get so many emails and people reaching out to me through social media and asking for help. And it became overwhelming because I want to help every one of them. But in in a social media private message or through an email, I thought, I can't give you all my wisdom in an email. So I thought, what's the best way that I can help people? And I figured the best way was to write a book as a resource to give to people with my best advice for what can you do to make it through depression and come out on the other side. And that's when I really thought, okay, I'm going to write this book because by 2020, depression is going to be our greatest epidemic worldwide. And when I started writing this book, this was back in about 2014. So we still had several years. Now it's just next year. Well, the statistics haven't changed. It's still going to be our greatest epidemic worldwide, greater than cancer, heart disease, and AIDS put together. And so this was really a burden on my heart because I want to do something to see if we can't change that trajectory. Awesome. Well, have you personally struggled with depression and how has that pushed you to do the book? Can you talk a little bit more about that personal struggle? Yeah. I grew up in a home with a mother who was depressed the entire time that I lived at home. But for most of that time, I didn't realize that that's what it was. I just kind of chalked it up to 
That's the way she was. I didn't have a label for it. And her mother was depressed and her sister was depressed. So I have a strong lineage of depression in the family. And on the other side of my family, I've got a whole walking anxiety disorder. So every time we go to family reunions, it's like walking into Mm -hmm. a whole line of anxiety disorders. So I grew up with a mom who was depressed. And so while there's often those genetic contributors, there's also modeling that happens. And so I had my mom modeling what it was like to walk around being depressed and to live that way. And then after the birth of my first son, it was about two weeks after he was born and I went through a terrible bout of postpartum depression. And it was actually my mom who helped me understand that that's what it was. And I was a clinician at that point. I was already a doctor in treating patients, but sometimes it's harder to identify it in ourselves. And I was actually on the phone with my mother and she said, how are you? And I just started crying. She said, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. And she said, is there something wrong with baby? And I said, no, he's perfectly fine. He's perfect. But, you know, little things would happen. You know, a piece of paper would fly off the counter and I would start to cry. And and she said, put your husband on the phone. And she said, basically, honey, I I think you've got postpartum depression. I want you to hang up the phone with me. I want you to call your doctor. You need to get some help. And it was the best thing she ever did. And I got on medication and I made it through it. But after that, I saw so many patients who struggled with postpartum depression. And I realized nobody ever talked about it. None of my friends ever, ever, ever talked about it with me. But it was only after I went through it that I realized so many women struggle, but they struggle in silence. But then interestingly enough, after I agreed with God that I would write this book on depression, about two weeks after... He kind of shook me up and I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write this resource. I became deathly ill and so sick. I couldn't work and um, I had to be on medically mandated bed rest for about five months. I had to have two surgeries and I went from 113 pounds, dwindled down to a skeletal 74 pounds and I was kept alive on IV hydration and nutrition and became very, very, very depressed. And part of the reason that that happened was not just because I was so sick, but because my identity had been wrapped up in what I did as a doctor. And I couldn't be the doctor while I was so sick. I wasn't able to work. And in fact, all I could do was lie in my sick bed, really, and pray and watch sermons online and listen to praise and worship music about 24-7. And so I thought, well, If I can't be that doctor, what good am I? And so my identity was totally wrapped up in the wrong things. And I became extremely depressed. And I got to the point where I really cried out to God and said, God, you know, if I, if I can't do the things I'm used to doing, if I can't be the person I'm used to being, if this is all my life is going to be, I'm not sure I want to go on living. And it was a really, really low place in my life. And it really got my attention, but I was the doctor. And so I had all the answers or so I thought. And so I started doing all those things that I had told my patients to do for 20 years. I got into counseling. I tried medication. I made sure I was eating. I prioritized getting sleep. And as I started healing physically, I got back to exercise. And you know, All those things helped, 
but they weren't enough. They weren't enough to really take the depression away. And then I was really dumbfounded because I thought, I've been telling my patients to do all these things, all the things I'd been taught in medical school and graduate school. I had told my patients to do all those things for 20 years and it wasn't enough. And then I felt like a fraud. And I thought, if this doesn't work, I can't go back to being that doctor. Mm -hmm. So again, I cried out to God and I thought, God, if this doesn't work, if this is not enough to help people with depression, you've got to show me what the answer is because I'm not going to go back to being that doctor because I won't recommend something unless I know it works. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard the audible voice of God, but it was like a thought in my head. And it's not the kind of thought I've ever had before. And it was like God was saying, unless you address the spiritual side of depression, it's like you're trying to put a Band-Aid on an infection and expecting it to get well. And it was like a wind was blowing me over because I'd never thought of that before. And I'd been a Christian at that point for 40 years. Mm -hmm. It was right. I had been addressing the physical side. I'd been addressing the emotional side. I'd been addressing the cognitive side. But I hadn't been doing anything to address the spiritual side of depression. I didn't realize there was a spiritual side of depression. So then I really started crying out to God and saying, what do you mean? What, what is that? Show me what that is. And then when he started showing me, everything changed. And my entire life has changed since then. And how I treat patients has changed. How I talk to my family and my friends has changed. Everything has changed since then. I love that. Can you tell us how your journey with depression impacted your life, both the good and bad of that? Yeah, the good part is that now when I work with patients and when I talk to other people who suffer through things like depression, now they know I really get it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I would talk to people before I always had a lot of compassion, but when you go through something that someone else is going through, it makes all the difference because then you're walking alongside with a greater heart of compassion. And when I make suggestions, it's from a place of knowing. It's from a place of truly understanding. And I can say, yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. Now, our circumstances may be different but I really do get it. I get the pain. It's not just um, me being a doctor. I'm not just making a prescription. It's saying, look, I've been there. I've tried this. I know it works. And, you know, depression was such a painful, painful experience in my life. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And I don't ever want to go back there. But now I know the tools and some people will say, do you think you'll ever go back? And, and I'm not going to say I won't, but I'm quicker now when I start seeing things. I'm quicker to go, oh, I recognize this and jump back into what I recommend to patients and to, to other people that ask me, what do you recommend? It's, it's interesting because now I recognize there's a verse in the Bible that says what the enemy intended for harm God will use for good and for the saving of his people. And now I see that because the book that I've written 
that hope prevails, it's a totally different book than what I started writing because what I had in mind was a, a book written by a doctor and what came out of it, it's got wisdom from my clinical experience, but it's got my personal story. And if you read the Amazon reviews, that's what people say. People say, oh, she gets it because she was there and she lived it and now she knows what helps. And so I've been able to address it, not just from the clinical standpoint, but from the spiritual. I know the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I know how to attack and I know what we can do. God tells us in his word how we can address it. And so that's the good part. You know, God never wastes our pain. And I know that now. I'm not sure. People could tell me that before, but I'm not sure that I really believed it before. But now that I've been through it, I believe it wholeheartedly. Absolutely. We're taking notes over here. She's writing down, God never wastes waste our pain. Um when you were talking about your book and go, you personally going through it, Hannah had a really good question about um, what helped you through, and especially you mentioned worship music. So, ask your yeah. I, I noticed in the in the book how you put at the end of each um, chapter, you put down the songs, and music has always been like therapeutic for me, um, especially worship music. So I thought that was really cool that you did that. Can you tell us a little more about? why you did that and what part that praise and worship music played in your, your healing and in your journey with depression. Yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, when people are going through depression, if you've never gone through it, it's really hard to understand this or appreciate this, but when you're really depressed, some of the most simple daily tasks seem like it takes too much effort. I remember when I was so depressed that I would look at my toothbrush or I would look at my vitamins on the bathroom counter and think, that's just too much effort. I'll do it tomorrow. And I know that that, that just sounds ridiculous, but there were days after days that I would look at my toothbrush and toothpaste and just think, I don't have enough energy to brush my teeth today. And likewise, when I was laying in that bed and I was so sick and I was so depressed, I didn't feel like I had it in me to praise God. And I didn't want to praise God. And I remember thinking, why would I want to praise him? I'm in the worst circumstance of my life. I'm sick. I'm not sure that I'm going to live. I'm depressed. And so it was really hard to make myself audibly praise him, even though I grew up since a little girl, I I've been a Christian since I was seven. So I know that the Bible says to praise him. But I do love praise and worship music. And so I would have praise and worship music playing in my room 24-7. And part of the reason I do is because I did recognize that I was in a spiritual battle. When I started writing that book, the focus of that book is the fact that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And when it comes to depression, the enemy of our soul comes to steal our joy and kill our peace and destroy our identity. And that's largely what contributes to depression. Well, the same enemy, he hates it when we praise God. 
And when we praise God, he will leave. And so I knew that if I would pray, if I would play praise and worship music, he would have to leave. He's not going to stick around. And when I would play that praise and worship music, I would end up singing along with it. So even though I didn't feel like I could praise God out of my mouth, somehow when that praise and worship music was playing, I would end up singing along. And so I found myself thinking, wow, if it has that much of an impression on me, and then it, then it would flood me with these emotions, like all of a sudden it didn't seem so dark and gloomy. And I thought, if it has this much of an impact on me, maybe it will have that impact on others. So I, I made note of what those songs were that really helped the most, and I tied them into the chapters of the book. And I, that's another thing, that if you look at the Amazon reviews, that's what so many people resonated with. So in all three of my books, that's a common theme. I've included a prescription at the end of the chapter because I'm a doctor. So yes, you expect I love that. that's the your RX. I've included a prayer for my reader because sometimes you don't feel like praying when you're depressed or when you're anxious or you don't know what to pray. So I've prayed for them. And then I included a playlist at the end of each chapter so that it would give you an idea of what songs might help. And there's so many good ones out there, but it's kind of a jumping off place for where can I start? Yes. So since you are a neuropsychologist and you have you know, gone through this yourself, have you been able to see a difference in how you treat the patients? Um, I know you spoke a little bit like from your understanding point, but have you noticed a different healing in them versus before? So much so. And part of the difference is because even as a neuropsychologist, you know, we're, we're taught from a worldly perspective. All of our medical training, it doesn't take into account the Christian perspective. And so I had never fully realized the impact of our words before. And now I recognize how important it is to think about what we're thinking about, which goes back to the scripture of how important it is to take every thought captive and how there is power for life and death in our words. And so I probably spend more time than anything else talking over with patients about our thought life and our words. And I don't even have to bring up the Bible. If my patients bring up religion or they bring up God or they bring up the spiritual side, I can dive right in. But even if they don't bring it up, I can talk about how critical it is to be mindful of what you're thinking about and what you're speaking about. And they don't even have to know that's biblical. Mm -hmm. But it is neuropsychology. And so that has totally changed everything. But it that doesn't stay within my private practice. That spills over into how I parent my kids. It spills over into when I'm having conversations with friends. It spills over into when when people see me speak at conferences and, and they'll come up and say, well, what do you think about so-and-so? You know, it's, it's simple things, but people will say things like, well, that just drives me crazy. And I'll say, well, if you say so, and they'll, they'll go, well, what do you mean? I'll say, well, you've just given that permission 
to drive you crazy. And that is scriptural. And so that has probably been the biggest life changer for me and the biggest change in how I work with patients. And I think it's made huge impact in their growth and recovery. I love that. I just wrote down taking words captive. That's yeah. something that I can practice on all the time. I've got two young ones and I, I just want them to never have an issue with, you know, words or thoughts that they have, which I know we will. And that's just, you know, part of growing, but so important. I love that you mentioned your kids and even it's spilling over to how you treat your family. And my kids are learning. There was one time when I was speaking at a conference and I'm not particularly technologically savvy. And um, a friend was helping me with PowerPoint slides and I, and she's in California and she said, well, I just need to know, you know, what you're trying to convey or something. And my son overheard me say, I don't, I don't know. I'm just too stupid for this or something like that. And he said, mom, do you realize what you just said? And I thought, so he recognized that I was giving my words power. And I thought, I'm not too stupid. Mm-hmm. I just slow down and think through what am I trying to convey? But we have to intentionally think about what we are thinking about. And we have somewhere between 50 and 70,000 thoughts a day. So when God says to take every thought captive, it means we really do need to slow down, pay mm-hmm. attention. What are you thinking? And that's why the enemy has so much power because we don't think about what we're thinking about. And we say things so quickly, it just comes out. We need to slow down and think and really take every thought captive. So good. Yeah, that's a big thing for me is I just get going and then I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. You know, it's definitely something I need to work on. But I've heard that statistic too about the 50 to 70,000. And I'm like, that is crazy. Exhausting. It is exhausting. I'm like, no wonder I'm so tired. I haven't done anything all day, but I'm exhausted. <laughs> Can you tell us if there was anything you wish you would have done differently um, as far as your depression, how you dealt with that, um, or anything you wish you would have done sooner? Yeah, there's a couple things. My father died when I was 15. And not long after that, I remember telling my mom, I think I need to get some counseling. And because of my mom's own um, battle with mental health, she said, oh, no, I think you'll be fine. And I wish that I had pushed the issue a little bit. And so if there's one thing I want your listeners to hear is that if you're a parent and your child asks for help, get them help. Because I think that that probably would have given me tools earlier. But here's the other thing is that I struggled as a mental health clinician as an adult because I listened to the voice of the enemy saying, you know, if any of your colleagues know that you struggled with depression, they're going to stop referring to you. They're going to think less of you. Your patients are going to think less of you because you're supposed to have all the answers. And that's, that's a big part of what leads to our depression and anxiety is listening to the lies of the enemy. And I listened to them instead of thinking they should think more highly of me because I'm willing to go get help. 
because none of us have it all together. Every doctor has to go see a doctor when they get bronchitis or pneumonia or a broken leg. So there is no shame in seeking help, but I bought the lie. So I, I wish that I had listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit a little bit sooner and not let pride get in my way and not um, let shame get in there. But I'm, I'm willing to look at it now and say, okay, but that was a learning experience. And there is no um, condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. When you were going through it, was there anything that people did for you when you were going through depression? Was there anything that people did for you that was wonderful and that you were so thankful for? Were there things, I know you have the um, free download with the prescription, your most popular prescriptions. I think that's what it's called online. You can download it. And that has been really helpful to me. But did you have anybody that specifically did any of those positive things for you or things you wish that they would have done? Yeah, a couple things. One of the things that was most helpful was those people who not just said that they were praying for me, but they actually prayed with me. Um, there's a great tendency, I think, in our busy culture to say, oh, I'm praying for you. But we get really busy and we can forget to follow through. But there is so much power in actually agreeing with someone in prayer and praying with them because then they can hear it and that can really dispel a lot of the lies of the enemy because then we know you know scripture says where two or more are gathered there he is in the midst of them and when we agree together in prayer then it will be done and so praying with someone can be so uplifting and looking back that was one of the best gifts that people ever gave me. Uh, but one of the things that is most harmful is when people will say things like, oh, I know how you feel. And then they give an example that communicates they don't know how you feel. You know, like, yeah, I really had a rough day last week too. Okay. I was in a horrible pit. I had dwindled from 113 pounds to 74. You having a hard day last week really didn't compare. So we have to be really careful of trying to compare ourselves. Watch what you say. Again, it's the power of our words. And some people would say things like, well, you must have unconfessed sin in your life. Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all? And so I think of the story of Job. And when his friends came and they sat with him in silence, that was a beautiful gift. They were willing to come and just be present. And those friends who were willing to come and sit with me and be present when I was in my sick bed, those are the friends that I look back on and go, those were true friends. But when Job's friends started accusing him of this is why you were sick and this is why God has done this to you and this is what you should be doing, that's when they got in trouble. And I think the same about so many people who tried to tell me why I was sick and what I should be doing, that's when they got in trouble too. So the fewer words sometimes, the better. Thank you. That's sometimes hard advice, especially for me. I want to be like, yes, I yes, I get it. But it's good to just know that matters if we sit with them and just yeah. let mm. them be. We we want to fix it, but let's face it, that's God's job. 
let's just be present so that someone feels comforted and not alone. It's not our job to fix it. And when it comes to depression, you can't fix someone else's depression, but you can be present so they don't feel alone. That's a gift. That's really a gift. You can't fix it. You didn't cause it. Mm-hmm. So just be present. But for any of your listeners who might be walking alongside someone who is depressed, at the very end of my book, Hope Prevails, there is a link for a free book, How to Help a Depressed Loved One. That actually got cut from the original book because otherwise the book would have been too long and nobody who was depressed. (laughs) But I felt so strongly that that resource needed to be out there that it still got included in a way that it wouldn't cost them anything extra. It's great. Can you tell us um, how your career impacted what you've been through in a positive way? Yes, because, you know, if I hadn't had the training then I don't think that I would have, first of all, realized how prevalent the problem was. When I went through depression, I, I would have thought I was the only one who'd experienced it. And that is such a huge lie that the enemy wants us to think, whether it's obesity or it's depression or it's divorce. He wants us always to think you're the only one who's going through this. Nobody else will understand So fortunately, I did know how prevalent the problem was, but by having the training, it also affected me because I tried everything I had been taught to do with my patients. And so I think God used that to show me his ways are always higher than our ways and we can't rely on man's ways. We have to go back to God's ways. So I'm grateful in a way that all that schooling, all that money, all that time that I had put into learning man's ways, while it's helpful, it's not the be all to end all. It has to come back to God's ways. You had mentioned if I have a listener that um, is going through similar circumstances and how to support them. But what about that person who is out there right now and they are in the pit and they're trying to get out or see the light and they just feel hopeless? What would you say to them? I'm going to tell you the thing that I think made the biggest difference for me. It wasn't counseling. It wasn't medication. It wasn't diet and exercise. All things, all those things are wonderful and they all helped a little bit. But the two things that I think helped the most were playing the praise and worship music. But the one thing that helped the most was finding scripture. And I list them throughout the book. In fact, the very first part of the book, I wrote the letter to my depressed self, and that that's probably got over a hundred scripture that are so helpful. I would write down a scripture verse that was encouraging and it, it just spoke to me and I would write it on a post-it note and I would post that somewhere that I would see it like on my light switch or on my bathroom mirror or on my dashboard of my car. And every time I saw it, I would recite it out loud three times. And the reason why I did that is because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so every time I would see it, I would recite it out loud so that I would hear it, so that it would become part of me. So that then in the future, when I would come up on 
doubting myself or wondering, am I ever, ever going to come out of this? The Holy Spirit would remind me of that. And I'd go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God promises this. Because, you see, there's a difference between facts and truth. The facts might be, for example, that someone has cancer. But the truth is that God is still our healer. The facts might be that you've got a zero bank balance, but the truth is that God is our provider. And so that scripture, by repeating it out loud and getting it into us, God will remind us of that when we need to remember his truth. And I think that made all the difference for me. It was learning to rely on God's truth instead of the difficult circumstances that I saw around me. And trusting that God is for me, not against me, and that I can rely on him, even when my circumstances don't seem good. Thank you for that. We know you have a new book coming out called Breaking Anxiety's Grip. Will you tell us a little bit about that? After I wrote Hope Prevails, I had readers start to write to me and say, when are you going to write a Bible study? And I (laughs) said, no, I don't write Bible studies. And they kept writing into me saying, please write a Bible study. I said, I don't write Bible studies. I'm not Beth Moore. I'm not Priscilla Shire. And one day I felt like God said, you don't write Bible studies, but I do. And so I thought, okay, God, if you'll help me, I'll write a Bible study. So my second book was The Hope Prevails Bible Study. And then not long after I wrote that Bible study, Then readers started writing to me and saying, when are you going to write a book on anxiety? (laughs) And I thought, oh, no, I don't want to write another heavy book because those two books were really heavy. They're on depression. I mean, that's heavy. I thought, I want to write a book on chocolate or iced tea or beaches because I'm like a beach girl. (laughs) You know, who's going to be helped by a book on chocolate? Really? You know? And so I... I wanted to write a book that was going to help people. And in my private practice, really, so many people who struggle with depression also struggle with anxiety or vice versa. Not everybody, not everybody, but anxiety is considered the common cold of mental illness because so many people struggle with worry or fear or anxiety. And we've just come to accept it as It's just going to happen like a common cold is going to happen. And God said, that is not my best for you. I came to give you peace. And so I realized, okay, that's what's really needed. That's what people are asking for. And so, God, you're going to have to show me if that's what you say, your way is peace. Then really, how do we wrestle with worry, fear, and anxiety? Because you talk about it hundreds of times. You say, Do not worry. Do not fear. Be anxious for nothing. And so I started researching the market. I thought, do we really need another book on that? There's hundreds of books on that. But what I realized is so many of those books say, God said, don't do it. So don't. And I grew frustrated because they don't really tell you. So what else do you do then? And I I think this book is going to help people really realize we don't have to worry. Here's what you do instead. So I'm hoping anyway, this is going to help people break anxiety script and really live from a place of peace instead of worry. Yes. Oh, I'm I'm excited excited. for it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're excited to read it. 
So we like to end every podcast with a fun question, especially because our podcast can get a little heavy Mm because we talk about heavy stuff. But can you tell us some of your favorite things or just some things that you're loving right now? Yeah. Okay. So my favorite, favorite thing is chocolate. Um, I (laughs) love the beach. And, um, you know, one of my most favorite thing is just watching my kids love life. I've got a college junior and he's becoming a pilot. And just this summer, he went be- beyond becoming a pilot. Now he's a flight instructor. And oh. my youngest son is a high school junior, and he's starting to explore colleges. And to me, I never thought I would say this, but that's like one of the funnest things is seeing my kids move into their God-given calling. It's been fun for me to move into my calling, but watching them move into their calling, that's the best. Thank you so much. You are wonderful. I, I feel really filled up right I now. I do too. Yes. <laughs> You're a joy to talk to. Thank you so much. It's been fun anytime. Thanks, friends, for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow along on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any exciting new episodes. <laughs>